Look, I know what you are thinking. This is not Andrew. You are not wrong. For those of you that don't know me, I'm John. I'm one of the founding pastors of the Vine Church. But I'm sure I speak for all of us when I say how greatly we have been blessed and more particularly personally challenged by this amazing series. I feel humbled and honored to be here today and pray I can do the subject justice. And a big shout to those of you who are watching this online as well. As we see Andrew in Egypt in a moment, we will have a chance to view one of the only, the only remaining of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But what we will also get is a perspective of the power and the wisdom and the strength of the Egyptians. But what we'll see is it is worldly power and worldly wisdom and worldly strength. <laughs> but can I say, impressive nonetheless. So without further ado, let's go over to Pastor Andrew in Giza. There is nothing more iconic of ancient civilization in Egypt than the Great Pyramids of Giza. These monumental tombs were constructed some four and a half thousand years ago, each taking around 20 years to complete, using an estimated 100,000 skilled workers. The project was begun by Pharaoh Khufu in 2550 BC, and his Great Pyramid is the largest in Giza, towering some 481 feet above the plateau. These pyramids are made of local limestone and the outsides were so highly polished that the stones would sparkle in the sunlight, making the pyramids shine like a huge jewel. On a clear day, they can be seen from as far away as modern-day Israel. They were, and still are, a powerful declaration of ancient Egypt's brilliance, power and beliefs. Belief was indeed one of the primary driving forces behind why these pyramids were constructed in the first place. You see, ancient Egyptian pharaohs believed that they would become gods in the afterlife. And so they filled their burial tombs with the things that they would want in the afterlife. Things like jewelry and art and goods and food and gold. And so contrary to what people often think, these pyramids actually tell us more about Egyptian life than they do about Egyptian death. And it's this brilliance of Egyptian life that the pyramids really reveal to us when we get up and close and personal to them. I mean, to be here and actually to be standing amongst these incredible structures, I mean, it truly is a breathtaking experience. The scale and the scope of these structures is unparalleled in the ancient world. And when you begin to understand some of the facts behind how the ancient Egyptians actually constructed the pyramids, I mean, you truly become in awe of what those ancient people actually achieved. 
Take, for example, the engineering precision of these pyramids long before modern day technology. Each of the pyramids' size rise at an angle of 51 degrees 52 inches and are perfectly accurately orientated to the four cardinal points of the compass. They are, in fact, the most accurately aligned structures in existence, facing true north with only a 360th of degree of error. Not only this, but they are located at the intersection of the longest lines of longitude and latitude, meaning they sit at the exact center of the Earth's landmass. Just stop for a moment and reflect upon that achievement. I mean, in order for the ancient Egyptians to actually get the accuracy of the placement of the pyramids so correctly, they would have had to have had advanced knowledge of such things like the, like the form and the shape and the weight of the earth, uh, its relationship and distance to the sun, uh, things like the actual length of the solar year, uh, the number of years that are in the processional cycle, uh, the average temperature of the habitable world, and so many cosmical facts and mathematic formulas that actually weren't going to be invented for centuries to come. I mean, how the heck did they actually manage to do it? Well, scientists and engineers are no closer discovering today, some four and a half thousand years later. The brilliance is seen not just in the engineering or the placement of the pyramids, but actually in the very building blocks themselves. All 2.3 million building blocks had to be individually prepared, individually cut, then transported, brought here, lifted, placed into the pyramid in exactly the right place where it needed to go. And the thing that blows my mind is that actually when you look at the average distance between every single building block on a pyramid like this, the average distance is just 0.5 millimeters in width. I mean, the accuracy of that just blows my mind. But to show us something that any of us who live in a hot climate would deeply appreciate, I actually need to take us inside the pyramid itself. Come with me. Say hello to the most effective air conditioning system in the world. Here's the crazy thing. Despite the amount of heat that's pounding down on the outside of these structures right now, inside the pyramids, the average temperature has never gone above 20 degrees centigrade. Never. And here's the crazy thing. 20 degrees centigrade is the average temperature of the Earth. Now, how the Egyptians ever knew that, I have no idea. But even this is not the most amazing fact about the pyramids. There's one more thing that really blows my mind. And to tell you about that, unfortunately, I now need to take you back upside to the heat. If I was to ask you how many sides the Great Pyramids of Giza has, you'd say four, just like me. Well, actually, we would be wrong. There's not four sides to these pyramids. There's actually eight. And here's how it works. The ancient Egyptians, when they built these, they built them with slight, from bottom to tip, slight concave indentations in each side of the pyramid. And those concaves are only viewed at certain times within certain lights of the year. Now, here's the thing that really, really is incredible. They built something into these pyramids that no one in their lifetime would ever actually be able to see. And that's because you can only view the eight sides when you're looking down directly from above. And of course, no one in ancient Egypt would ever be able to be up and above the pyramids looking down on them. 
So the question we have to ask is, why did they even bother to do that in the first place? Why did they create such a unique thing in the engineering and in the design that no one in their time would ever view? Well, maybe the answer is just simply because they could. I think it's fair to say that these pyramids are a true human miracle, a testament to the brilliance of the Egyptian civilization. And when you're sitting here and you're a part of it and you experience it, you can truly understand why Moses was so terrified to oppose them. I mean, how could a shepherd with a lisp stand against a civilization that could do this? Well, the answer to that is found in what we see God do next. Life is not always fair. For his part of the talk, Andrew got to go to Egypt. <laughs> For my part, I got to go to Legoland. My uh, nine-year-old grandson, Angus, put this together for me. <laughs> but the fact that it, even this is not your run-of-the-mill Lego model. It's described as an adult architectural model. On the cover, age 18 plus. It, it, it gets me how... They think that someone who's 19 can actually build it quite easily. Someone who's 17 is obviously too young. <laughs> and it was over 1,500 pieces. It just reinforces Andrew's observations that the amazing background to the pyramids and the incredible way in which they have been constructed and some fascinating facts about them all show how smart how really smart the Egyptians were, and how much fear that must have created in Moses. But what we're going to see, I'm going to give you a spoiler alert now, is that despite all the worldly power and worldly wisdom and worldly strength of the Egyptians at this time, God's power is indisputably the greatest power in the world and nothing could ever compare. <laughs> but Moses didn't see this. By now, he was just a, a shepherd boy. And a shepherd boy with a stammer to boot. He had experienced the great power of the Egyptians when living in Pharaoh's palace. But by now, this was over 40 years ago. We saw last week that God shocked Moses by telling him that he, he was God's chosen agent to bring about the Exodus. Predictably, Moses said, who, me? As Andrew so clearly showed us, God said, yes, you. In chapter 3, we read this, remember it. So now go, 
go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. In the last two weeks, Andrew has shown us Moses at the burning bush and God's call on his life to partner with him in returning to Egypt and letting his people go. Moses has had a lot to say about this and feels very inadequate for the task. And it is this conversation that we now pick up this week as we head into chapter 4. As we begin chapter 4, Moses is still stammering. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say the Lord did not appear to you. Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? Let's stop there. I I guess many of us have felt like Moses. Who me? Has been our theme song. Probably being paid on repeat. I know that certainly that was the case 20 years ago when I felt the call of God to, to pastor this church. I had none of the usual qualifications. I, I hadn't been to theological school. I hadn't pastored a church, and I certainly didn't resemble any of the pastors I knew. Thank goodness. <laughs> I, was just an, I was just an insurance man. I joined the insurance industry at 17 from school, and that was all I knew. Who, me? I found myself in a similar position to Moses. I would say to myself, people won't listen to me. I'm not a real pastor. But in the same way, I felt the same question from God. What is in your hand? And Vine Church, this is the same question that God is asking each one of you today. What is it that is in your hand? In my case, I um, hastily arranged to have a dessert buffet at the Marriott Hotel with Tony Reid, who, who, by the way, was just an engineer, with our wives, and we resolved that together and with God's grace and provision, we might just be able to do this. Who, me? Yes, you. God then shows Moses three signs to help him to be able to prove that God is at work in this world and is truly the most powerful thing that there is. The first sign is a staff. Verse 2 says, The Lord says to him, What is it that's in your hands? He said, a staff. In the 40 chapters of Exodus, the word hand is used 64 times. 
The hand is associated with a person's activity. It represents what a person does. So how were Moses' hands made ready for the Lord's work? For starters, humility. I put it on the screen. You see, Moses' staff was that of a shepherd. The Bible tells us in Genesis 46:34 that every shepherd was an abomination, was repugnant to the Egyptians. As Moses stood before Pharaoh and all of Egypt, the staff in his hand would be a constant reminder of Egypt's total disdain for him because of his vocation. This in turn would remind him that without God, he could do nothing. Moses, without God's favor, could do nothing to please Egypt with his ever-present reminder of his lowly stature grasped in his hand. In himself, he was an outcast, a person despised and rejected in the world's most dominant nation. But, I love that word, the most dominant nation in the world would soon learn that there was one more powerful. In Moses' might, the staff was simply that of a lowly shepherd. However, as the staff of God was used in this man's surrendered hand, the wooden stick became a symbol of authority. This represents a precious principle regarding how God uses people. God used what Moses had in his hand. Moses' years of tending sheep were not useless. Those years had put into Moses' hand the thing he could use for God's glory. I love this. I put this up the screen for you. God did not use the scepter that was in Moses' hand in his royal hand when he was in the palace, but he did use a simple shepherd's staff. Church, God loves to use what is in our hands. Just look throughout the Bible. God used what was in Shamgar's hand, what we call a cow prodder, a cow prodder to kill 600 Philistines. God used what was in David's hands, five stones in a sling to kill Goliath. God used the jawbone of a donkey in Samson's hand to slay a thousand men. God used five loaves and two small fish in the hands of a little boy to feed 5,000 men plus women and children. 
Again, the words of the psalmist ring true. Psalm 62, 11 says this, one thing God has spoken, two things have I heard. Power belongs to you, God. So after Moses' humility came his obedience. Verse three says this, and he said, throw it into the ground. Look, look what happened next. So he threw it in the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. I'm not surprised, would you? We'd all run from it, right? It became a serpent and Moses ran from it. Oh, but the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the ta- tail. Woo! Yeah, I'm sure. Church, don't miss this. This is very, very, very dangerous. I don't know if we have any snake charmers here, but any trained expert snake charmer would take up the serpents by the neck so that they might not be able to bite him. Moses was encouraged to show his trust in God by taking the serpent up from the tail. Yeah, right. His courage, as well as his faith, is shown in his ready obedience. Now, this ties in beautifully with what Andrew said last week about God's promises inviting us into being active partners in the three areas of obedience, trust, and faith. So this is what happened. So he put his hand out and caught it. And it became a staff in his hand. I'm not demonstrating this one, by the way. (laughs) Thus, Moses' initial fear was compounded by the command to grab it by the tail, an action that could easily result in a fatal strike. But Moses obeyed the word of the Lord, overcoming his fear, and the snake returned to a staff in his hands. The second sight was Moses' hand. Now, Moses' hand wasn't bitten off by the snake, right? So it's still there. It was the subject of the second sign. Let's read it. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was leprous like snow. And the Lord said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. After Moses' humility and obedience came his righteousness. Putting his hand inside his cloak was symbolic of Moses putting his hand over his heart. The heart represents what a person is and what he speaks. As I said earlier, the hand is associated with a person's activity. It represents what the person does. The Hebrew word for leprosy here covered a number of assorted diseases, much as our word cancer does today. When Moses pulled his leprous hand out of the cloak, it showed him 
that because man's heart is evil, so too will be the work of his hands. But when Moses returned the second time, returned his hand and it was clean, it signified that his hand that holds God's staff must be cleansed. A cleansing evidenced by a clean heart. Over the past few weeks, we've been looking at the personal journey that Moses has been on the level of his identity and what he thought about himself. The naked and unashamed invitation by God at the burning bush to come just as he is to receive healing and acceptance. Now, with a pure heart and a pure hand, the Lord is saying, take my staff and do my work. Each of the first signs, first two signs had to do with transformation. Something good and useful, a rod or a hand, was made into something evil, a serpent or a leprous hand. And significantly, they were transformed back again. There was a real message in these first two signs. The first said, Moses, if you obey me, your enemies will be powerless. The second said, Moses, if you obey me, your pollution can be made pure. Doubts in each of these areas probably hindered Moses. And before these signs spoke to anyone else, they spoke to Moses. This is a pattern with all of us who call ourselves followers of God. Let me remind you, Andrew has been saying repeatedly that this Exodus series has been primarily about your personal Exodus, perhaps even more than the wonderful passage to freedom of the Israelites. God is saying to us, Today, right here, right now, obedience. Obedience is the key to your personal exodus. Let me say that again. Obedience is the key to your personal exodus. Obedience will nullify your enemies. Obedience will purify your heart. Obedience is your key to deliverance. The characteristics of humility, obedience, and righteousness that were necessary for Moses are the same for us today. However, the foolishness of a shepherd's staff used to deliver people has been transformed into the foolishness of a cross. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. On to the third sign. And the third sign was water into blood. Let's read it. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you should take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry 
ground. My friends, the third sign was of a different nature. The third sign was simply a sign of judgment. Good, pure waters were made foul and bloody by the word of God, and they did not turn back again. Notice that. This showed that if the miracles of transformation did not turn the hearts of the people, then perhaps the sign of judgment would. The Bible tells us if they do not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, shows that the sign of judgment was only given when unbelief persisted in the face of the miracles of transformation right before them. Now the power of of Moses to turn the water of the great Nile into blood should be understood in the light of the status held by that river in the Egyptian culture. The river Nile was honored as divine. It was a god. Its waters were held to be the source of all that was good and desirable in Egyptian life. In a word, it was an idol. Through Moses, God showed his power and superiority over the pagan gods of Egypt. As an aside, it demonstrates the need for us to remove all the idols from our life as we work through our personal exodus. And our idols, as Andrew's told us, can include seemingly good things, like our job, our family, our financial security. It was also a a forerunner to the first great plague that we will see later this year in Exodus 7. Now, the signs may have convinced Israel. They didn't convince Moses. (laughs) Or at least Moses was not ready to yield yet. Look at this in verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your service, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. God's answer to this is astonishing and a way incomprehensible. Verse 11, the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? My friends, this is a dramatic statement. Revealing the sovereignty of God, and God revealed it in the context of an invitation to trust God and to work with him. Now, we might feel that Moses had every right to expect healing. We believe that healing is included in the atonement. Not only does God not give healing to Moses, but he actually seems to take responsibility for the defect. God knew, as well as Moses, that sickness and death, including Moses' impediment, were a result of the fall. What God seems to be saying to Moses is the same thing he said to Paul when the apostle prayed for the removal of his thorn in the flesh. My grace is sufficient for you, 
For my power is made perfect in weakness. But this, this only leads to another round of punches between God and Moses. And you know always wins, right? God says, therefore go. I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Moses, don't you love this guy? Oh, Lord, please send someone else. Do you recognize those words? Yeah? Do you? I do. Every time I get an incoming call from my funeral director friend, Carr, from White Lily, my heart goes in my mouth, telling me that someone has passed away. Maybe someone old, maybe someone very young, maybe dying after a long illness, maybe a suicide. I know what's coming next. Can you possibly take the funeral? And oh, can you go and visit the family? Who, me? Is there no one else? <laughs> Moses now shows his true colors. His problem wasn't a lack of ability. It was a lack of willingness. If you want to know how to enrage God, practice these words. Send someone else. <laughs> we read verse 14. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against him. God wasn't angry when Moses said, who am I? God wasn't angry when Moses asked, who shall I say sent me? He was not angry when Moses disbelieved God's word and said, they won't believe me or listen to my voice. He was not even angry when Moses falsely claimed that he was not and had never been eloquent. But God was angry when Moses was just plain unwilling. The basic truth is that Moses was unwilling and not unable. This leads us to a fascinating few verses. I want to read them as a, as a chunk here. I love this. That the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is not Aaron your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth. And I will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people. And he shall be your mouth. And you shall be as God to him. Now, at first sight, it seems that God is helping Moses out. Ah, don't worry, bud. <laughs> I understand how you feel. I'll get your bro, Aaron, to help you. Now he's a real talker. But we've been missing the point. When God brought Aaron to help lead with Moses, it was an expression of his chastening to Moses. Not of his approval or giving in to Moses. 
Aaron was often more of a problem to Moses than a help. In Exodus 32, it was Aaron that instigated the worship of the golden calf. He fashioned the calf himself and built the altar himself. In Leviticus, Aaron's son blasphemed God with impure offerings. In Numbers 12, Aaron led an open mutiny against Moses. As these episodes unfolded, Moses surely looked back at why God gave Aaron to Moses as a partner. Because God was angry at Moses' unwillingness. Now, Aaron might have been a smooth talker, but a man weak on character. Moses had to put the words of God into the mouth of Aaron. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. Now, don't get me wrong here. Let's put this in context. We shall see that there were times when Aaron was an incredible help to Moses and was in his own way, a great servant of God, despite his faults. When we get to Exodus 17, we'll see Aaron and her just faithfully lifting Moses' hands during the battle, the Israelites' battle against the Amalekites. But let's go back to Exodus 4. The revelation ends, this is great, I love this, with God reminding Moses about his staff. I don't know if there's any irony in God's reminder. As if he wants to say, don't forget your stick. Verse 17, end of the chapter. And take in your hands this staff with which you will do the signs. As we conclude... I want us to see this story as an encouragement. When God calls us in life, whether that's in a marketplace position, in a family, in relationships, in whatever sphere of influence we have, He always equips us through His miraculous and awesome power. Ah, we don't see staffs turning into snakes these days. But what we do see is God changing people's hearts. We do see him anointing us beyond our gifting. We do see him creating favor we don't deserve and opening doors that we never thought could open. In the same way that God said to Moses, what is in your hand? So God says to us, What is it that I've given you? What is it I've equipped you with? I've gifted to you. Those are the things that through my spirit can become the sign to others that I am the one true God. What we're going to do in a moment is something special. Very simple ministry time. I'm going to be asking you to stand in a, in a few moments. Very simple. I'm going to ask you to hold your hands out. Now, before you do that, am I giving you everything, Lord? 
Am I holding something back? You say to me, I, I'm not very gifted. Whatever you've got, put it in your hands. And we as a church are going to stand before God and we're going to ask for His Holy Spirit to anoint those things. And I believe that as we do so, God is going to do in your life more than you could even imagine. In the life of this church, in this city, more than we could imagine. If we will only offer him what is in our hands. But before we do that, I'm going to ask everyone to close their eyes for a moment. I'm very conscious there may be people in here, and there certainly were at the first service, who haven't yet put your life in the hands of Jesus. You haven't surrendered your life to Him. I'm going to give you an opportunity to say to Him, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I believe you died upon the cross. Would you forgive my sins and come into your life? Come into my life. I'm just going to allow a moment as God speaks to you now. If you need to make that step this morning, I'm going to pray for you and we as a church are going to support you. Or maybe once upon a time you were walking with God, maybe as a young person, you don't, you don't actually know why you're in church today, but something's brought you here. Maybe a friend's brought you here. And you've wandered a long way away from God. Today is the day when you say, God, I'm coming back to you. Jesus, come into my life again. Church, this is potentially the most important time of someone's life. Let's respect this by keeping our eyes closed. And if you're that person or those people and you want to use this opportunity to give your life to Jesus Christ right here, right now, I'd love to pray for you. I'm going to ask you to do one very, very simple thing just so I know who I'm praying for. Could you ask why every eye is closed? Could you just raise your hand so I can see you? If you want to give your life to Jesus. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Anyone up in the balcony? Thank you, I see that hand there. I'll give you just a moment. I see that hand at the back. Don't be shy, just raise it a bit higher. Come on, it's good. It's a good time to do it because we're going to pray for you. I'm not going to make you feel embarrassed. I'm going to just pray for you. I think it uh, is upon us as a church to really spend just a moment for those people who've raised their hands. We never know why someone is raising their hand, but that is a step of faith. And for those people who raise their hands, we have people here afterwards who will pray with you and encourage you. But just for the benefit of those raising their hands, I just see another hand go up over there. Thank you very much. Would you all pray this prayer 
with me for the benefit of those people as we welcome in the kingdom. Repeat after me, dear Jesus. I think that was a little bit shy, everyone, by the way. Dear Jesus, I thank you that you died for me. I recognize I am a sinner. I'm in need of forgiveness. Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God. Jesus, I ask you now to forgive my sins and come into my life and fill me with your Spirit. Lord Jesus, I know now that I am yours and that I will spend eternity with you and my brothers and sisters. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's welcome the people who prayed that prayer into the kingdom. Let's all stand. Just take a moment. When I ask you the question, what is in your hands? Don't tell me I'm not as gifted as that person over there. It's not time to run around, Lord, send somebody else. Just put your hands out in front of you. All across the church, this is amazing. This is an act of faith. Saying, Lord, all I have is yours. I may not have very much, Lord, but what I have, will you use it? And I pray, Holy Spirit, you will come upon your church. Fill this church. Lord, take these hands which are surrendered to you and multiply the gifts and use the gifts, Lord, for the benefit of others, for the benefit of this city, for this nation. Lord, you used a little boy who was a shepherd boy. He wasn't little at the time. He was lowly to bring about your exodus. I'm going to pray that God will give you courage today. Courage is the word I have. That God, by your Holy Spirit, will you just give us courage? Will you give us courage tomorrow when we go into our workplace? Will you give us courage when we go out to dim sum today with our unsafe family friends? Will you give us courage on the streets of Hong Kong? We are believing, Lord, this is a significant time for our city. Holy Spirit, fill me afresh. I need you.
Amen. The sense of God's presence in this place. Let's not move from there quickly. His hand is upon you. See his hand upon this lady over here. This gentleman here. God wants to take what is in your hand. Change a city. Change a nation. Who, me? Yes, you. Yes, you. Thank you, Lord. Let's release ourselves in worship now to him.